Amen. Thanks so much, Frederick. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, asking for the help and the filling of the Holy Spirit. What Frederick just read ended with Paul saying, I, I too have the Spirit of God. And that he, he said that what he was writing, he was writing because by the Lord's mercy, he had been found trustworthy. Trustworthy to write Holy Scripture. Trustworthy to write an inspired text by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I pray, Lord, that that same Spirit who inspired Paul to write these words to the church at Corinth would now speak to us, would now illuminate your word to us uh, right now, Lord. And we pray, God, uh, there are uh, a variety of different uh, people here from a variety of different backgrounds who are in a variety of different situations and circumstances as it relates to singleness and to marriage. And we pray for your grace and for your favor as we open your word now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we are continuing in our series, uh, Church uh, at a, a Crossroads, uh, we're uh, continuing in uh, a worship service here as members of the Hope Church family. And part of worship is uh, singing, part of worship is praying, and part of worship is uh, reading God's Word, and part of worship is uh, giving as well. And so we want to remind you that there are multiple ways that you can uh, give uh, in these current times, all of them electronic, and there is a physical offering box at the back of the, um, of the auditorium as well. The title for today's message, I just always in, in finding titles for sermons, I just try to use words from the, uh, uh, from the text. And so the title for today's message is The Unmarried and the Married. Um, I thought about calling this sermon uh, The Unmarried and the Unsingle. There's, there's something inherently biased even within the way the English language talks about marriage and singleness. If you're single, you're unmarried, like you're without something. You're not married. But if you're married, you're not without anything. It's like an, it's a single person is somehow incomplete, and a married person, they don't have any unattached to them. As Sam Albury uh, points out this this irony of why don't we talk about married people as though they're unsingle? Like Lindsay and I got married in 2003. I've been unsingle for 18 years. I'm happily unsingle. We, 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 don't, we don't talk that way, do we? And that reveals sort of an inherent bias in the way that our culture, even in our very language, thinks about those who are married and those who aren't. It implies that there's some sort of deficiency in singleness, that you're unmarried, under, that you're somehow lower or somehow less, that it's some sort of secondary or substandard kind of life, that you're sort of one step away on the, the rung of, of the ladder of, of success or fulfillment in your life, but you haven't quite got there. That's not how the Apostle Paul thought about singleness. That's not how the Bible describes singleness. A couple of weeks ago when I knew this passage was coming, I always want to be really intentional to make sure that I'm listening to the Lord through his word, but I also want to make sure that I'm listening to God's people 
And so I reached out to about 15 or 20 uh, single people uh, in our uh, church family and had them uh, share with me some of their uh, thoughts. So the first question I asked them is, well, what do you wish other Christians knew about singleness? Here's how uh, one young woman responded. She said, oftentimes a look of pity comes across the face of another Christian when they find out I'm single. I want to encourage Christians and say that it is possible to be fully satisfied and content in your singleness. This does not negate the very real desire for marriage, but it highlights the deep satisfaction and contentment that comes from Christ alone. Another single said, singleness is not a problem that needs to be fixed. If I think singleness is a problem, then I start to think I'm a problem, that I'm doing something wrong or that there's something wrong with me. Another young man said, I wish other Christians knew that being single just means being sanctified by God differently. By God's grace, this sanctification can be a method someone chooses or it can be something God chooses for a person. You don't need a significant other in your life to have significance in your life. The world tells us that you're somehow incomplete. If you are single, if you are unmarried, then you are sort of an unfulfilled person. But loved ones, the truth is you do not need a significant other in order to have significance in your life. Remember, Paul, all throughout the book of, of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, has been laying out this idea of a primary calling, of following Jesus, and that trumps any other secondary calling, any other situation we find ourselves in, whether God is choosing to sanctify us through marriage or through widowhood, through singleness or slavery or freedom, circumcision or uncircumcision, that there are no, there's no substandard way of living the Christian life. If you have Jesus, then you have all that you need. So Paul here, in chapter 7, verse 25, begins by saying, now concerning. That's referring back to um, what, what he said in chapter 7, verse 1. If you look back at verse 1, he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Remember, there was a lot of back and forth. There were some people from Chloe's household that had visited Paul and had brought back a report. And the, some of the leaders at the church at Corinth had written a letter and asked some questions about marriage and sexuality and physical intimacy and divorce. And, and they had also asked a question about singleness. It says, now concerning the betrothed. Now, betrothed, the word that's translated in our English Bible is betrothed. That's just the Greek word for virgin. Now, here, it's, it's not a sign with a masculine or a feminine article, but the five other times that it's used in this text, it's used to describe a, a young woman, a woman who is not uh, married and who is, uh, it, who is looking uh, to be married. Now, we got to remember the context in Corinth. This was a vastly divided church family when it came to something like sexuality, some members of the church family in Corinth, to them, it didn't matter who you slept with. I mean, you've got a guy in chapter 5, verse 1, he's sleeping with his mother-in-law. You've got guys in chapter 6, verses 12 to 20, and they're going to visit prostitutes on a regular basis. So you had one group of people that were sort of falling off the cliff in terms of sexual morality, 
And then there were others who had built a fence and then a wall and then another wall and then a fortress and then all of these barriers. And they had actually gotten to the point where they were saying that sexuality itself is sinful, that the sexual act, something that God had created to be good and to enjoy, to be enjoyed, was somehow wrong. And so that's why Paul had to clarify, as Pastor Chris shared a couple of weeks ago, that it's okay, married people continue to be physically intimate with one another because there were people in the church who were saying that that was wrong. And there, there were people in the church who were saying, you should divorce from your spouse so, so that you're not tempted to do that bad thing. That's not a bad thing. Stay married, stay intimate. Paul has been, has been trying to clarify this misunderstanding of sexual ethics. Those who were going to the prostitutes had it wrong, but those who were saying a full abstinence and celibacy, even for those who were married, they were wrong as well. But then the question came up, because Paul had been talking a lot about married people, he said, well, what about single people? What about the betrothed? What about virgins? Should they bother trying to get married at all? Because this celibate group was having such an influence on the church. Now the interesting thing here is that Paul agrees with the conclusion of the celibate group. Paul agrees it actually is good to be single. But he's being really careful because he doesn't like the rationale that they follow to get there. Do you remember in math class when you used to like you do a math test, you had to show your work? And even if you got the right answer, you still wouldn't get all the marks because you didn't show your work. Did you remember that? That's what Paul is saying here. He's looking at the conclusion of the celibacy group and he's saying, you're right, singleness is good. You got the right answer. But how you got there, oh my goodness, is so wrong. So Paul here wants to remind the church family that you don't need a significant other in order to have significance in your life. That the single life Paul's going to share involves the absence of difficulties and the presence of opportunities. That's what he really wants to make, make clear. That if you choose to live a single life or if God chooses a single life for you, then that will bring with it the absence of some difficulties that would come, off, come on to someone who is not single, who is unsingle. And also some opportunities that are not available to those who are unsingle. So Paul says, now concerning the betrothed, he says, I have no command from the Lord in verse 25. He says, Jesus, during his earthly ministry, didn't speak explicitly to this issue. He says, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now Paul's not saying, hey, just don't really pay attention to this. This isn't really serious. Um, don't trust my, uh, my word. No, that's not what he's, he's saying. I've been entrusted with apostleship. By God's mercy, what I'm about to share with you can be trusted as the authoritative word of God on this issue. He says in, in verse 26, I think that in view of this present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, that's not surprising. That's what he's been saying all along. Are you physically intimate with your wife? Remain physically intimate. Are you married? Remain married. Are you, are you a, a slave? Remain a slave. If you can get free, get free. Are, are you circumcised? Remain circumcised. Are you uncircumcised? He's been saying, remain, 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 remain. He says, he says so in light of the present distress, Paul says, I recommend that you 
remain as you are. Then skip down with me at verse 29. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Then look at verse 31. The very end of the verse, it says, for the present form of this world is passing away. Paul talks about a present distress. The appointed time has grown very short. And the present form is passing away. What does he mean by this present distress? Now, Nothing is mentioned in the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians about any sort of famine or, or, or a pandemic or any sort of economic downturn or a heightened persecution. So I don't think Paul's talking about something specific to Corinth. When he, when he talks about distress, that, that word is used in verse 37. It's translated necessity. It means pressure. It means obligation or it means a crisis where you're being pushed in a certain direction. So Paul says, in light of the present distress, well, it's the present distress, the, the times in which they are living, the hostile, anti-Christian world in which the church at Corinth was living. That's the world that we're living in as well. And he says the appointed time in verse 29 has grown very short. In verse 31, that the present form of this world is passing away. What Paul is going to share here, he's, he's going to share three things that we all need to keep in mind, whether we are married or unmarried, whether we are single or unsingle. And these principles, so if you heard me talk about singleness right from the start, you think, well, this, this sermon, you know, I'm married, so this doesn't really have anything to do with me. Um, that, that's, that's really, that's, that's not true, because he, he actually talks uh, a fair bit to people who currently are married uh, as well. But Paul is really going to lay out three things that we need to think about. When we think about marriage, when we think about singleness, we need to have these three things in mind. Here's the first one. Whether single or married, we all must live with an eternal perspective. Whether single or married, we all must live with an eternal perspective. Paul says there's a present distress in verse 26. He says the, t the appointed time in verse 29 is growing short. And in verse 31, he says the present form of this world is passing away. We're living in a present distress and the time is short. Paul repeatedly said that we are living in the last days. Hebrews chapter 1, the author of Hebrews says, Now in these last days God has, has spoken to us through his Son. The long-awaited Messiah has come. He's brought atonement. He's brought forgiveness. He's brought reconciliation. He's brought everything the prophets have predicted. But he came in a way that no one expected. He came and he died himself. And he inaugurated, this is the beginning of the end. We are in the end times. And all that needs to happen, the only thing that needs to happen now is for him to return. Everything else, every other prophecy has been fulfilled. We're just, now the time has gone short. The time used to be long before the Messiah came. How long is it going to be? Now we know there's only one more thing that has to happen. The trumpet. In the cloud, and here we go. He says that the time's growing short. Now remember, God does not count slowness the way that we count slowness. But, but Paul lived with certain urgency and a certain eternal perspective that he wanted to impress upon the church at Corinth and the Holy Spirit wants to impress upon us as well. The appointed time is short. 
And Jesus said, this is, a, this is a present crisis. This is a present distress. Jesus said, in the world, you will have trouble. He says, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you. To, to, to live as a Christian at any time is a time of distress. If you're not feeling some distress, you're, you're not living like a Christian. So Paul says, in, in, in light of the times in which we are living, verse 26, let him remain as he is. Remain married, remain widowed, remain a slave, remain free, remain circumcised, remain uncircumcised. And he says in verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Don't get divorced. Don't walk out on your spouse, even if your spouse is an unbeliever. That's what he said in early, earlier in the chapter. Then he says, are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. He says you, you don't have to, you don't have to find a spouse. You don't need a significant other to have significance in your life. But then he says in verse 28, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And then he says, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Paul is trying to make, again, because there's this anti-sex celibate group that is saying that if, if two young people fall in love and get married, that that is somehow sinful. That, that if two married people engage in physical intimacy with, with one another and enjoy that pleasure together, that that is somehow sinful. And Paul's saying it's not sin. Paul, Paul's talking here not in terms of commandments. He's talking here in terms of really just concern for them. But he wants to be really clear. If you choose to get married, it's you haven't sinned. So look at verse 28 again with me. It says, for it, for if you, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. If a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Now, this does not sound like Paul. I mean, he says, it's better to remain. But if you do marry, it's not sin. Yet, it's probably better not. Like, <laughs> Paul is normally just like straight and narrow, north, south. And yet Paul here, he's being a sensitive pastor. He understands that everyone finds themselves in a, a unique situation and circumstance. And so we can say, remain, but yet... Just like as, as, as the elders move from person to person in the foyer at the front of the church or as small group leaders are trying to counsel or in, encourage people, every, per, every situation is different. We're not looking at cookie-cutter Christian situations. We've got to listen. We've got to learn. We've got to love. We've got to seek to understand. There is a lot of yes, but, and yet. And that's what Paul is doing here. But he wants to make sure that people understand that there is a present distress and that those, those stresses are compounded when we bring marriage and children into our lives. He says that those, those who marry in verse 28 will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. He's concerned. Singleness, again, is not a problem that is fixed by marriage. Marriage itself can be a problem. <laughs> 
Now, there are some problems, there are some challenges that go with being single. That's one of the other questions that I asked some of the single people in our church. Here's some of the responses I got. I said, what are some of the biggest challenges and difficulties with singleness? One of them said, I would say one of the biggest difficulties is having the desire to be married and not yet having that desire met. It is hard when you desire to be a wife and want to use the gift that God has given you, specifically in the context of a marriage. Many times I feel like I think a lot about my needs, my wants, my plans throughout the day. I don't want this. I truly want to serve someone else in the everyday comings and goings in the home. It is hard when you feel like you're in a season of waiting, but you also know that marriage is not promised as well. Another older uh, single said this, feelings of loneliness, especially during birthdays, Christmas, and Valentine's celebrations. When one has a hard day at work or when one is sick and there's no one to make a cup of tea and no one to pick up the slack. Another young man said, the, the biggest difficulty for me is that I desire no longer, sorry, the biggest difficulty for me is that I desire to no longer have the gift of singleness. Though we are free from additional worldly troubles, one can feel trapped within that freedom. Being single while desiring not to be feels like affliction, not favor. How does one desire and pursue something without being selfish? These are some of the, the struggles that, that single people wrestle with. Paul, Paul is aware of all of those things, but he also says, listen, there is some, there is some trouble that, that, that is brought upon people when they choose to get married, especially in a context, in a world that is hostile to Christianity. Sam Albury wrote a very helpful book called Seven Myths About a Singleness. Chris referenced this a, a couple of uh, weeks ago, and he said something very, very uh, insightful. He said this, he said, um, let's go to the next slide. Uh, the fact is, both singleness and marriage have their own particular ups and downs. The temptation for many who are single is to compare their downs of singleness with the ups of marriage. And the temptation for some married people is to compare the downs of marriage with the ups of singleness, which is equally dangerous. And then he goes on to say, he, he lists all of these different uh, uh, heartbreaking marriage situations involving illness or involving infidelity or involving death or involving financial hardship or involving wayward children and all of these brokenhearted married people. And then Sam, Al Sam Albury, as a single man, says, you know, you can talk about being happily married or happily single, but he says, I would far rather be unhappily single than unhappily married. That, that, the that, that if marriage goes wrong, the, the trouble that comes into uh, your life is, is catastrophic. There are worldly troubles that, that Paul, again, he's not commanding it. It's not about sin or obedience for him it's just about it's his pastoral concern he wants to spare people from those kinds of troubles well, what does he mean well he's going to say verse 29 this is what i mean <laughs> this is what i mean brothers the appointed time has grown very short 
From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though, though, as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. He says, those who have wives to live as though they don't. What does that mean? Like, don't go home? Like, check into a hotel? That's not what he means. No, he, he wants to remind us that everything in this world is passing away. And everything good in this world is just a shadow. It's just a picture of something that is, that is better that's coming. Marriage is temporary. Jesus said in, in Matthew 22, verse 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. We're not, we won't be married in heaven. We're, we're all going to be single in heaven. So Paul is not saying, I'll oh, just walk out on your wife or walk out on your husband. He's saying, reorient and reevaluate the way that you think about your marriage and what you're trying to get out of your marriage in light of the fact that you're not always going to be married. And then he goes down the list. If you're mourning, this is probably the widows. If you're grieving a spouse who has passed away, your grief doesn't define you. Your mourning will one day turn to dancing in the new heavens and the new earth. He goes on to say, even you're rejoicing, no matter how happy you are right now. It will be nothing compared to what God has prepared for us in eternity. Those who buy goods, whatever treasure you manage to accumulate on this earth, remember the treasure that we have in Christ and the streets of gold that we'll be walking on. It's, good. it's pavement and asphalt. This, the, the stuff, the precious metals of this world in the new world is going to be the things that our feet tread on. To live with an eternal perspective and those who deal with the world, again, to understand, to reorient and reevaluate the way we think about everything in life, not just singleness and marriage, but our possessions and our mourning and our rejoicing and our possessions. Everything that we have needs to be viewed in light of eternity. He's not saying renounce these things, he's just saying reevaluate them in light of eternity. So, whether single or whether married, Live with an eternal perspective. That's Paul's initial pastoral concern. Here's the second one. Live with an undivided devotion to Jesus. Whether you're single or whether you're married. Whether you're unmarried or unsingle. Live with an undivided devotion to Jesus. Verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests, notice this, his interests are divided. Underline that word. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this of your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided, underline that word, undivided devotion to the Lord. 
that there is a natural division of devotion that comes when we invite a marriage partner, when we invite a family into our lives. For the unmarried, for the single, there is an absence of difficulty. You're spared some of the worldly sorrows that Paul talked about in verses 25 uh, through, uh, through 31. So there's an absence of difficulty, but there's also a presence of opportunity that comes with singleness. He talks about the, the married man and the married woman, how they are anxious about many things. They're, they're, they're not like the single person who's just anxious about how to serve the Lord. The married person is anxious about, about their wife, about their husband, about their children. Let, let me just share just a really simple illustration. It's, it's super simple. And obviously, the issues of singleness and marriage are far bigger than what I'm about to describe, but this is just a little bit of a window. Think about being a part of the Hope Church family and coming on a Sunday morning to worship at one service and to serve at another service. That, that's the normal rhythm for members of the Hope Church family. They, they come to church and they spend one, one, one service in here and then they spend another service over with Hope Kids or in another ministry or out in the foyer or the cafe, and they're serving the Lord. Now, for a single person, you come to church and you serve the Lord. You come for one service. You come, now, there's a whole lot of other issues and stresses that involve who am I going to sit with and, and how am I going to feel. and all. There's a whole bunch of other things that go along with, with being a single person coming to church. I'm not trying to negate that. Because the issue is not that one is harder and one is easier. What I'm trying to show here is that one is simpler and one is more complex. For the single person, they woke up when they wanted to wake up. They came to church either on time or late, and that was on them. And afterwards, they're going to have lunch when they're hungry or when they're not hungry. Someone who's married has to wake up has to wake up in such a way that they don't wake up other people who aren't supposed to wake up yet. That's where it starts. And even though you're not hungry, there are other people who need to eat in order, in order for you to get out to church, whether it's your spouse or whether if you have kids. Then there's the whole issue of God never puts people together in the same family where one is punctual and one is tardy. So there is, always that, there is always that stress of one of you, you might be the one who's stressing everyone out because out you're taking so long to get ready, or you're the one who's so frustrated about the other person trying to get ready. Then there's the whole thing of getting into the car. A single person, you just get into your car and you drive. If you're not single, you've got to decide who's going to sit where. That whole thing. So now you're, now you're in the car, okay? You're only coming to the 9 o'clock service because 11 o'clock doesn't have kids' ministry. So you can't choose to, to sleep in. If you want to come with your, your family, you, you have to come at a certain time. And then, so you make it through the service. Now you want to serve in the second service. We've got to figure out what you're going to do with the rest of your family so that you can serve. You've got to figure out, you've got to find a place for them to be or something for them to do. And, and you're, you're fine. You, you had half a bagel for breakfast, but someone's falling apart in your family and they got to get fed. Then you've got to find a place where everyone can agree to eat or a meal that everyone can enjoy at the same time. Do you see what I'm saying? Again, it's not easier or harder. It, 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 it's simpler or complex. There, there's, a, there's an anxiety and there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's more obligations. 
And I know single people in our church understand this. When, when I ask them what are some of the joys or some of the, the opportunities that come with, with singleness, this is, what, this is what they shared up here on the screen. I'm truly more flexible than others by not having a spouse to care for and thus able to sacrifice for a variety of people more consistently. I also have much more flexibility to grow in my love and understanding of God and pursue him. And another, another one spoke it, described it in this way. I have a capacity to sustain a range of friendships. The ability to be flexible and available, to get enough sleep, to meet needs on the fly, to be more free to make decisions. And then I love this quote from this next young, young woman. Being single has allowed me to fill my schedule up freely to serve the church, my small group, my friends, and my family. If I weren't single, I honestly think I wouldn't have the time to be a part of all these commitments, at least not in the same capacity. These opportunities have been so life-giving and have helped me grow in my walk with the Lord. There's an, there's an undivided devotion that all of us are called to. But there is an undivided devotion that a single person can live out without those, those added anxieties. Again, it's not better or worse. It's not easier or harder. It's simpler or more complex. I, I think about when we planted Hope Church Toronto North. And we, we had some uh, families, we had some seniors uh, go and join uh, that church plant, but we had a lot, of, a lot of singles, a lot of young unmarried people who are in, investing hours and hours in getting that church plant off the ground. Now, they didn't have to think, well, you know, my, my, my kid really likes a wanner, or my teenager's involved in the, in the youth group, or my, my husband's really engaged in the men's ministry here. No, it was just... I, I feel called by the Lord to do this. And so I, I have the freedom and the mobility to be able to serve in this way. Paul says, go back to verse 35. He says, I say this for your own benefit. He says, not to lay a restraint upon you. That, that word is noose. I, I don't want to put a noose around your neck. Now, it's not being morbid here. What he's describing here is a, a loop that you would put around an animal. If you wanted an animal to stay put, you'd put a spike in the ground and, and a rope around that animal's neck so that the animal couldn't go anywhere. And Paul saying, listen, this is not about sin or obedience. I don't want to put a, a, a chain on you. I'm not trying to, to stop you from, from fulfilling what you're free to do. He's simply saying, I want to promote good order. And then he uses the word secure in undivided devotion to the Lord. I'm not trying to tie you to some sort of stake. I'm trying to attach you to an undivided devotion to Jesus. Because remember, remember what Jesus said in, in Luke 14, 26. Like our devotion is pretty clear. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is part of counting the cost. Even if you're married, yes, we have these pulls and yes, there's this complexity, but our devotion, it's the same message for all of us. 
We all must have an undivided devotion to Jesus. And we all must live with an eternal perspective. And then lastly, we all must live with gospel freedom. we got to understand the freedom that we enjoy. We're not tied to a rope and a stake that says we can only go this far. We have freedom in Christ. Verse 36, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. Again, Paul's trying to make it clear. It's not sin, it's not sin, it's not sin. Now, this particular paragraph is really difficult to translate because it's really not clear when it says he, if anyone thinks he is behaving properly, behaving properly toward his, not behaving properly toward his betrothed. Who's he and who's his betrothed? We, the way the ESV translates it and the way that we would think about it in our contemporary context is that he is a fiancé, it's a young man, and his betrothed is the young woman that he is engaged to. They're, they've, they're already engaged. He and his virgin, he and his betrothed, this, this potential engaged, this potentially, uh, sorry, this engaged couple that is going to be married. And they're asking the question, should we get married or not? But another completely legitimate way to read this passage is it's describing a father and his betrothed, his virgin, is his young daughter. And remember, think, we've got to jump out of our context and, and romance and marriage and all of that, and we're jumping into uh, an arranged marriage kind of a situation where it's the, the father has to give his, his blessing. And so the question here could be at the father wondering, should I, should I give my daughter in marriage? Now, if we keep reading, in verse 38 it says, if his passions are strong. And you're like, well, that's kind of weird if it's the father. What does it mean if his passions are strong? Well, You've got a footnote in your ESV Bible. His is added there because the ESV translators are interpreting the, the translation here. It could be her. And passions is also an interpretive translation. The, the word is a, a word that's, that's um, uh, very rarely used. It's hyperacmos. Hyper means over. Acmos means peak. Over the peak. So it could describe... A young man whose passions, whose sexual desire are, is over the peak. And, and so he, 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 he should get married if he has the opportunity to. Or it could be over the peak in terms of over the age of being what was considered culturally marriable. It could be referring to the, to, to, to the woman. Now, I, I think, I agree with the ESV translation here. I, I believe that it's, it's describing, the, but I know some of you might have a, another translation of the Bible, and you're thinking, this is saying something totally different from what you're reading to me, so I wanted to make known to you sort of the interpretive and translation challenges there. But the bottom line, whether it's a father giving his daughter in marriage, or whether it's a young man deciding to follow through on his engagement, the, the bottom line is right there at the end of verse 36. It is no sin. You are free to get married. Verse 37, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, that's the same word for distress in verse 26, no pressure, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. To, to, to say to the, the person that, that is currently a virgin and you're about to get married to and to say, 
I'm not going to marry you. My desires are under control, and I've decided in my heart, or for the Father to say, I'm not going to give you in marriage. But notice in verse 37 the repetition of heart. Firmly established in his heart, under no necessity, no pressure. Then it says, and determined in his heart. What? Why? Paul says, if you're going to make the celibacy decision, make sure it, you're making the decision. Make sure that these anti-sex, celibate, crazy people in the church of Corinth aren't pressuring you to make a decision that's ultimately going to lead to your downfall. That, that's what he's getting at. You have to decide in your heart whether or not you're going to go through with Don't let anyone else pressure you. And what Paul is saying is you are free. You are free to not get married. You are free to get married. And, and Paul is trying to make that abundantly clear. You've got to determine it in your own heart. It says, if, if he has his desire under control, I'm in verse 37, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as betrothed, he will do well. Verse 38, so then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Again, Paul agrees with the bottom line. He agrees with the answer. He just disagrees with the way that the celibate group was getting there. He says, it, it's, it's, it's better. He, he prefers it. Paul Paul laid his cards on the table at the beginning of the chapter in verse 7 when, when he said this. He said, and he says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul, said, Paul was single. He says, I wish everyone was single like me. But he says, each one has their own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, it's a misreading of this verse that has led to all kinds of heartache for single people in our church family. Paul is not lumping singleness as a spiritual gift. This is not 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You don't have prophecy and tongues and teaching and administration and helps and singleness. It's not part of the list. Singleness is not a spiritual gift. There's only two options. Each has one, one kind and one of another. When Paul talks about spiritual gifts, he doesn't say one kind or another. He says there's a variety of gifts. No, there's only two options. You either have the gift of singleness or you have the gift of marriage. So singleness is a gift. Marriage is also a gift. This, some people talk like singleness and Sam Albury in his book brings this out brilliantly, that singleness is somehow this, this ability to put up with all of the disappointment and the unfulfilled desires of being single. And, and, and if you're able to do that, then it's a gift. <laughs> That's not it at all. Because otherwise, there would have to be a gift of marriage in the same way to put up with all the difficulties and the challenges of being married. I mean, Lindsay has that gift for sure, if that gift exists. It's not what he's saying. He's saying we have to understand whatever circumstance we find ourselves in is a gift. It's from God. It's designed by God for our sanctification. It's not that the, the person who is more content in their a singleness has the gift of singleness and the person who's discontent in their singleness it doesn't have the gift of singleness. That's, that's not it. 
If you're single, you have the gift of singleness. If you're married, you have the gift of marriage. Your spouse might pass away. Then you no longer have the gift of marriage. You're back in having the gift of singleness. You might be single and you might get married. That means you no longer have the gift of singleness. You now have the gift of marriage. This whole idea, some of the singles were talking to me in a Zoom call about this idea of this prosperity gospel that if I can just somehow be content enough, then God will provide provide a spouse. What on earth is that? We don't earn gifts. We, We don't... Work up, how can you be content without something that you really want? It doesn't make any sense. Why do we say these kinds of things to single people? It doesn't make sense. Some people have the gift of marriage. Some people have the gift of singleness. The way to know the difference is to know if you're married or if you're single. That's how you know. That's how you know what gift you have. And then he shifts from the engaged to the widow's. Remember, you might be sitting here, again, as a married person, thinking, well, this is a singleness message. This is never going to apply to me. Well, listen, for just about 50% of every married person in this room, 50% of us will be single again. It's super rare that you're going to go out together. So we may not be there right now, We might think that, you know, the grief share program that people are faithfully pouring into people who are grieving the loss of spouses or children or whatever that may be that's happening this afternoon. We think, well, I don't don't need that. We're all going to need that at some point. And so Paul here lastly says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Again, gospel freedom. She's free To whomever she wishes. Here's the only limitation, the only caveat. Only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. This is is step one. When Pastor Chris and other elders and other leaders in our church do premarital counseling at, at at our church, is step number one is to make sure are both people interested in getting married? Are they both saved? Are they both Christian? Because we're, we're, we're not going to talk about communication or how to get, because if you're not saved, then it's a non-starter. That when, when Paul is talking about the anguish that these other Christian people are going through because they're married to an unbeliever, he would not wish that on anyone getting started. So he makes it clear to the widows, but it's clear to the virgins as well. We're, we're only marrying in the Lord. And then he says, yet in my judgment, again, yet, this, I'm going to say this, yet, but, yet, well, yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. But my judgment, the way I came to my conclusion, is a lot different than some of the people at the church at Corinth. And then he says, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Remember, the church of Corinth thought they were so super spiritual. Remember chapter 1? And they, they thought they were so wise. They thought because they had tongues and prophecy in their services that they had the Spirit. And Paul says, oh, you know what? Yeah, I, uh, I have the Spirit too. I'm an apostle writing with apostolic authority. And you need to knock it off with all of this celibate talk and creating two layers of people. In Corinth, they were saying that the single people are better than the married people. Our culture is just reversed. We often say that the married people are somehow better or superior to the single people. Let me share a couple of other uh, thoughts from 
brothers and sisters who are single in our church. Marriage is not the ultimate prize, nor can an imperfect human ever give us lasting joy, happiness, purpose, etc. The fulfillment of my deepest relational needs can only be realized in Christ alone. I personally know this to be true. Christ has never failed or forsaken. And in those lonely, shameful, self-criticizing moments, he's been my constant companion. Another sister said, I used to think that by being single meant that I was missing out on something better. That was my pride and selfishness talking. We serve a God who beautifully orchestrates every part of our lives. And for me to think I'm missing out is for me to say my plans and thoughts are better than the Lord's. It's humbled me. Rather than focusing on what I don't have or what could be, my responsibility is to recognize all of the blessings I do have and ask the Lord how I can best use my life to serve him in my singleness. And then I love this. I am single, but I am a Christian single. God is our father, and I'm a part of his family. I am chosen, and I am loved. Loved ones, when you get the gospel, you get gospel freedom. Whether you're married or unmarried, whether you're single or unsingle, we are free in Christ, and he has provided for us all that we need. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity that you have given to us on the importance of marriage, what it symbolizes, what it means. We're all one day invited to a marriage supper. We're all invited to the feast. And the marriage that many of us enjoy or the marriage that many of us endure in the present distress is only temporary, is only part of this world. We will all one day be single again. And we will, and whether we are single now or whether we are married now, we will all bow before the Lamb and say, worthy are you who was slain the one who lived the most fulfilled, the most significant, the most glorious and beautiful life in the history of humankind, a single man, Jesus Christ. So Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we have in him. We thank you for the hope that we enjoy in him. Whatever station or situation or circumstance we find ourselves in, may we find you to be so faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.